everybody's going to have a personal plane crash in life. It may not be a literal, literal plane crash like I had, but maybe a, a fire, a flood, a, a health situation. But there's strategies on how people have survived that and thrived. And, and you know, I'm not the first, and I won't be the last. Welcome to the Up In Your Business podcast, building you to do business better. This show is about intention, transparency, and insights from business professionals sharing their personal business. Discover what they've learned the hard way so you don't have to. Empowering a new breed of self-aware leadership. Here's your host, Angus Nelson. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 060 of the Up In Your Business podcast, building you to do business better. I'm your host, Angus Nelson, and it is so great to have you here. If you're new to the show, this is your weekly dose of business savvy, emotional intelligence, and oftentimes a bit of inspiration. And uh, I hope you'll get some of that today. My role here, I see, is to help you master your mindset, dominate your fears, unleash your amazing, and live your most effective self. And our guest today, he is the last passenger off of the plane of U.S. Airways Flight 1549. Now, you may know a little bit about this. If you happen to have seen the new Tom Hanks movie, Sully, that just came out, it's based on this particular incident. And it's also known as The Miracle on the Hudson. And uh, when that plane was ditched into the Hudson River on January 15th, 2009, um, our guest, his life changed. And after a 30-year career as a sales executive, he turned that tragedy into a message of hope. And he's a motivational speaker in the areas of entrepreneurship, leadership, and teamwork. And uh, we'll be talking about his newest book, Moments Matter. Today, we're talking to Dave Sanderson. Let's jump into that interview right now. You're listening to the Up In Your Business podcast, building you to do business better. I'm your host, Angus Nelson. I'm here talking to Dave Anderson. Dave, how in the world are you? I'm unbelievable, Angus. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty ducky, ranking up there, peachy keen. So what was the most passionate thing you've done in the last six weeks? The most passionate thing that I've done in the past six weeks, I would happen to say that, um, you know, being with the fellow passengers from 1549 at a uh, shooting of Inside Edition was pretty, pretty cool, I have to admit. I've done a lot of things lately, uh, but, you know, being able to be back with the passengers to do something to celebrate the movie Sully was pretty cool. And have you guys all kind of kept in touch since then? There's a Yahoo group, which we all interact with by way of our seat number, but I keep in touch with a few passengers, and I think everybody sort of has their own connections. And, you know, unfortunately for me, Captain Sullenberger and I share the same birthday, so we interact on our birthday every year. So it's, uh, <laughs> that's one of the cool little facts that doesn't get out, uh, get out too much. But, yeah, I'm very, I'm very blessed to be able to do that. That's awesome. So I want to dive into your story a little bit. I want to dive into, obviously, your book. Um, and then I want to get to a little bit about you. Um, so let's start with how uh, you started before the book, before the story. Um, can you back up and tell us about days wandering the Isles of Marriott? That when I tell you or when Howard I was... Johnson's, I should say, prior? <laughs> That's exactly right. I was... Here, so the backstory to that is I got out of college and my dad gave me 30 days 
to uh, get a job and Canley, I wasn't that motivated or yeah, plus it was a pretty tough economy, but you know, that wasn't probably the excuse for that. But day 31, he, uh, he, uh, he, he set to his word and he found me a job at Howard Johnson and told me I was going to be a restaurant manager, whether I liked it or not. And I was going to be out of the house in a week. And that's how uh, I started my journey in, uh, in the, in the business world. Cause I knew nothing about restaurants and hotels, but, uh, it was probably one of the best things that he, uh, he ever, he ever told me. Cause number one, I, I learned that, uh, he was a man of his word when he said when he says something it was going to be and he never went back on it. And second, he forced me to get a job that can uh, expanded my skill sets outside of my comfort zone and taught me some skill sets that I'd never thought that I'd either need or even use. So that's how I started with that. And of course, then Marriott purchased Howard Johnson a couple of years later, and I started working my way through Marriott, which I think is still one of the best companies I've ever worked for. A tremendous organization. Mm. And uh, in addition, you tell a story about uh, being the solo manager on on duty, and uh, Mr. Marriott himself was in the the restaurant during a time where you were a little short staffed. Most definitely, and that was uh, one of my probably one of my first big learning experiences in uh, in business because I was the uh, first assistant manager at that restaurant in uh, Vienna, Virginia, and it was uh, the day before Christmas and. That restaurant happened to be, I don't know if anybody here knows the Washington, D.C. area, but the 495 Beltline, where Tyson's Corner Mall is, it's right across the street from Tyson's Corner and on 495. So it was going bonkers and just going crazy around lunchtime. And uh, Mr. Marriott and his uh, executive team that are based in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, would traditionally do store visits during the holidays just to check in and go to their hotels and restaurants. And I had I had the lucky straw that day. And. You know, right a little around the lunchtime, he walked in with his entourage. I saw it all breaking loose, and I saw him, and I didn't know what to do, but uh, I was young and, you know, naive. But uh, my first two thoughts were if I tell him, you know, I, I needed help, then Canley probably says the guy can't handle a job. And or if I said I didn't, he saw it goes bonk. He said he got the wrong hire. So when he asked me the question of uh, is there anything I could do to help you, I, I said, well, yeah, I need someone to basically drop fries and by God, he picked up an apron, went back and started dropping fries, and then all of his entourage was sort of looking at, looking at us, and uh, he's like, come on, guys, start busting tables. And all of a sudden, I had the entire executive team and Mr. Marriott working with me hmm. um, during that experience, but it taught me a couple of things. Number one, you're never too good to uh, do the menial job. And second, he uh, shared with me after we got done a little debrief with the CEO and chief executive officer of Marriott that uh, reminded me that his name was on the wall. And Canley, we all, you know, we all need to do what we had to do to uh, support customer service. And that was the number one priority is to keep the customer happy. So it was a great experience for me. I never forgot that. And I still, to this day, focus on how can I serve the customer at an even higher level. And you kind of grew from that, and uh, you kind of had a trajectory that, I don't know, all of this never really was planned. I'm pretty sure your your high school counselor probably didn't sit you back and say, hey, Dave, so here's the plan. First, <laughs> A, then B, let's yeah. C. You ended up doing security for Tony Robbins, and can you kind of share maybe kind of how that all kind of came about? Well, I... I went to my first Tony Robbins seminar back in 1993 um, and it was in San Diego and you know I um, I was jazzed I was very motivated so you know I signed up to do another event but then I and they're very expensive mm-hmm. and I was how we were having children at that point so I had to figure a way to get get involved and just not have to pay so I volunteered 
serve as events, be those one of those people that go out at midnight, put some brochures down on, you know, around the chairs. But uh, I was in, we were in Maui, Hawaii, one of his, his seven day event called Date with Destiny. And I was one of those guys just out there doing whatever needed to be done. But his wife sort of got in a situation where she couldn't get out of the room. And I went over and helped her. And she said, you did that pretty well. Would you like to you know, be on the security team? And I'm like, that's a lot better than putting down brochures. Mm-hmm. So uh, she put me in the green room. And basically, I guarded the room for about four or five days in the green room where Tony would come in and out. And basically, I was just watching everything that was going on. And I guess I did that pretty well for a couple of times because then I was asked if I would sit on the stage on his, on his left hand, his left arm. And basically, I did for you know number of, number of you know, sessions. And then all of a sudden, he asked me if I, you know, if I would be an assistant security director, basically managing the team while the security director was managing him and the team. And I did that. And... You know, I gained enough trust with him over, you know, four or five year period where he asked me if he had security. And for about four or five years, I got to be that to have that position, not only manage the team, but be with him and travel with him around the world and learn and absorb everything that he taught. But like I tell people, what's more important than that is I, I was I was exposed to all the people he hung with. Mm-hmm. And that's even that's even a bigger that was a bigger treasure because I had I had the master with me, but I also had the masters that he looked at as masters around him. So it was an unbelievable learning experience and exposure to, you know, what could be and if, uh, if I just got my mind right. Mm. And then now let's bring you into the story. Uh, you've been with Tony for some time. You're thinking about, you know, maybe doing something else. Uh, you kind of roll into some other opportunities and then you get on a plane. Yeah, he, he always held me to a higher standard. Every time I would pick him up, uh, the first question he would ask me at the airport or the helipad would be, are you still working for that company, and when are you going to start working for yourself? So I was working for a, co- a large company, a large te- technology company, and I had done that for many years. And so I, you, know, you can only come up with so many excuses until he knows it's not true. So um, you know, I was, uh, I was heading to New York on the end of a three-day business trip, and you know, we, I started in Sarasota, Florida, went to Petersburg, Virginia, and ended up in Brooklyn, New York, and got done early because we were working in a distribution center. And so instead, I always would book the last flight out because you never know how the day's going to go, right? You could go early or late. But we got we started our day at 5, and we got done about 10. So, you know, I called the travel agent and worked with her, and she put me on U.S. Airways Flight 1549. And so, I, you know, the plane is now called and known as the Miracle on the Hudson. So I, uh, I truly believe that uh, for some reason I was supposed to be on that plane. I, there are times where I think why, but I think uh, there was a reason I was supposed to be on that plane. And, and of course, we know the story that, uh, you know, double bird strike and what Captain Sullenberger did was amazing. But uh, I was in seat 15A. I was overlooking. I got looking at the left wing, and, you know, I saw the fire coming out from the left wing, but I thought the plane lost that engine. I knew the plane had more than one engine because I fly 100-plus times a year. But no one on that plane except the captain and the first officer knew that what happened on the left side where I was at also happened on the right side, and both engines were dead at that point in time. And so I think one of the biggest parts of grace on this plane is no one knew that, so no one freaked out. No one, no one lost it. No one lost, you know, got a panic. It mm-hmm. was so quiet you could hear a pin drop. And I think that was one of the biggest reasons that this turned out the way it did. And I think maybe because everybody was kind of in shock that <laughs> they were all still conscious it was a. It is the miracle. So the time between when it took off, hit plane or hit birds, it crashed, and then all of a sudden, um, all these first responders are there, yep. and got you guys out and got you to the hospital. Was how much time between all of that? 
Well, I, it took me a roughly estimated between moment of takeoff to when I was hitting the hospital about 30 minutes. So I, uh, you know, the plane, you know, was about anywhere from 60 to 75 seconds after we took off is when we heard the explosion. Another about, you know, three to four minutes at that point in time to, to get over the George Washington Bridge, to glide over the bridge, get down in the river. And then, of course, I was on the plane for about six minutes uh, holding on to the lifeboat because I, I never got on the wing because I couldn't get off. So that's how I became the last passenger off the plane because mm-hmm. I just stayed in the back because I heard my mother say, you do the right thing, God will take care of you. And the right thing was is to help other people. And I, I knew I was alive, but I didn't know anybody in the back of the plane how they were doing. So I just sort of moseyed back and got back to where everybody was going out and see if anybody needed help. And that's why I became the last passenger out. And then uh, so I was, uh, it was roughly 30-plus minutes from the time of, uh, take off to the time I was hitting the hitting the hospital pavement. Mm-hmm. And from all of that, you've uh, then basically spent some time in the hospital because you were in that frigid water for an extended period of time. Uh, so you needed medical help, whereas some of the people were home two hours later. That's correct. That's that's why how this really became known as a miracle on the Hudson because you know it took him a couple hours because everybody started going home. I mean, you know, the people in New York, New Jersey, and some of the companies from from the surrounding areas where people are flying to, the Charlotte and wherever, their companies flew their company planes up to get their get their associates. So, you know, Barry and I were in the hospital in uh, New Jersey, so they knew where we were at, but uh, you know, they couldn't get they couldn't get a count, and that was one of the th- reasons why it took so long. But it's um, I was in for hypothermia, and Barry broke his or fractured his sternum, so mm. uh, he's the one who actually jumped in the water, um, you know, went upon impact and fell flat on the water. And, and fractured his sternum, so we were in the hospital together. But it was that was an amazing period because um, you know it took about five hours to warm my body up. But uh, it was an amazing five hours. But the only person Agnes who called me that night was Tony Robbins. Hmm. Um, my company didn't call me or check in, but Tony, with all of his resources, found out where I was, and I found out later how he did it. Mm-hmm. Which was a really an interesting, and when you have resources, you can use just about anything, right? You know. But uh, I was very honored that he uh, he thought enough of me to reach out and start. He started really coaching me one on one on what to expect. Yeah, um, it was coming up because he knew that my life was going to change dramatically, very very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, if I remember correctly, one of the things that Tony is really big on is that it isn't necessarily resources, but resourcefulness. And I think you even mentioned that in here and echoed that. So let's talk about um, this book, Moments Matter, How One Defining Moment Can Create a Lifetime of Purpose. Um, Obviously, the story is powerful, um, and you came out with this book. Um, Was that something that uh, you've been working on for a while? Um, How did that all transpire? Well, how it really transpired, I actually did a radio interview last night about it. Was that was about this topic right here, how it transpired. And what happened was, is I uh, uh, was contributed to a book called Brace for Impact. 25 of us contributed to this book. I shared my story up to that point, and, you know, we wrote it out, they edited it, and someone put it all together and all this stuff. But that's what gave me the itch, because at that point, it was about a year after the plane incident, the plane crash, and Really, you know, I spoke about 100 times that year, so I had a little bit to talk about. But, you know, what I started realizing and putting together was all these things that I, I did that day and I implemented and some other people implemented likewise is the same kind of strategies I learned from Tony and the same things that I was using in business to become a top sales producer. So I'm like, okay, there's a relationship between the skill sets you have 
you know, it, what you use in business, you can use in personal life, and you can use it through a traumatic experience. And that's how this sort of came about. And and so for a couple of years, I was thinking how to do this. But my former assistant, you know, Vicky called me one day. She said, listen, you know, you should just for your grandkids and their grandkids, just document everything that happened that day. So, you know, when you're gone, mm-hmm. they have a record of what happened because she knew that I, I told her a story about ladies who lived down the street from us who two older, older Jewish ladies. And I didn't know what their story was until one day they called me to fix their TV. And all of a sudden, I saw books laying out on their on their coffee table, and I opened them up, and they were books from you know the concentration camps in Germany, and mm-hmm. they were both in Bergen-Balten in during World War II, and I just begged them to record their story. I said, "You got to record this for posterity," and they wouldn't do mm-hmm. it. So that's how the book came about, is because all these lessons, you know, that uh, and Vicky sort of pushed me to you know the document it. So this is how it all started coming together, and we're very mm-hmm. very honored to be able to do it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So one of the, the the key components, I mean, your story is only like, I don't know, maybe a third of the book. And then you jump into like, I don't know, the 12 resources to create your personal flight plan. Um, can you kind of expand on uh, those 12 points real quick? Sure. So like I mentioned, what I, what I started realizing once we started, I started documenting this, we, we recorded about eight or nine hours audio recorded pretty much minute by minute through that what happened that day and uh so we started dissecting it's like well you know i there was you know i used a lot there was a lot of faith on that plane with not only faith in the spiritual being but faith in each other so you know faith is one of the components that you know that we i wrote about then i talked about risk management you know they had how you assess things when all of a sudden stuff's breaking loose how captain sullenberger assessed risk and we all had to assess a certain risk on that so another skill but you know some of the skills that i personally use that definitely were leadership how people stepped up in the times of a crisis and in teamwork and how 155 people hold together and just think mm-hmm. if how you could use that skill set in a, in a business set because, you know, most people don't get along in their companies. But one thing about this incident that they can share the business is, you know, everybody checked their egos at the door. Everybody was focused on one common mission. And all of a sudden that was something that sort of rang in my head because of when I escorted General Norman Schwarzkopf in 1999, he told me the same thing, how everybody had to check their check their egos when they went to Iraq. So, you know, leadership, you know, faith, how to manage your mind through a crisis, you know, communication through different ways, whether it's visual, auditory, kinesthetic. So these are some of the things that I and others use that day, and I use consistently in my business. And that's how these 12 resources that I came up with is like, you know, there's a flight. Everybody's got it's going to have a personal plane crash in life. It may not be a literal, literal plane crash like I had, but maybe a, a fire, a flood, a, a health situation. But there's strategies on how people have survived that and thrived. And, and you know, I'm not the first, and I won't be the last. Hmm. But at least I'll try to give people a roadmap so they can create that, their, what I call their flight plan. So if something does happen, they know there are resources to go to to be, like you said, resourceful mm-hmm. and resourcefulness. Yeah, I love um, one, one of those uh, aspects that you said in there um – was just something as simple as get up the aisle and get out of the plane. Right. Like in a moment of crisis, it's not all of this complexity and all of this, like what should we do? Where should we go? Like the only thing is get in the aisle and make your way out. Um, exactly. Just, just, you know, simplify the game plan, you know, clear, have clarity. And, and all of a sudden things open up because what happened after that happened. And I noticed I was doing that. 
is all of a sudden some of the top of the seats broke back on the plane and people are using the seats as pathways out. So all of a sudden you think you may only have one pathway in life, all of a sudden multiple pathways open up for you. You just have to look for them. You just have to be wide open and say, there are other ways to get this accomplished. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a great lesson from that day, great takeaway. Yeah, they, um, you know, the resourcefulness that you also echoed was uh, the fact that um, when you wanted to get out of town um, after you got out of the hospital, uh, it was beautiful because all these different individuals gave you their business cards. And so you immediately handed one of those business cards to your, your was it your nurse? Uh, no, it was my U.S. Airways uh, liaison, my Doreen from Pittsburgh, who flew in to be my, basically my ultimate, the person who took care of me, mm-hmm. you know, from U.S. Airways. That's so cool. And so they basically took you on a trip that normally would have taken you like two plus hours. And At least. With the police escort, got yeah. you in like 16 minutes so that you could catch your plane to get out of there. 16 minutes flat from Weehawken, New Jersey, LaGuardia. Unbelievable. And I, I stress to people, if you ever have a chance to take that, have a police escort to Manhattan, take advantage of it, man. There's nothing like it. <laughs> nothing like it. So um, I want to, um, you know, there's there's so many nuggets into this book, and I'm just going to recommend, so go check it out. Um, those 12 things, just to kind of um, key off of what uh, Dave was sharing before, are awareness, faith, certainty, responsiveness, state management, sensory acuity and communication, focus, anticipation, risk assessment, uh, persistence, teamwork, and leadership. Uh, one of those that stood out to me was state management. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit? Because that's a very Tony Robbins thing. That is a Tony Robbins thing. And so I talk about state management, the same thing as how to manage your mind, right? When and uh, put yourself in the proper state or the proper mindset. So, um, you know, during during the plane crash and in business, I always focused on how what, what's the appropriate state I need to be in, whether I need to be in a high-energy state or a focused state. So, and there's really three primary ways to do that, and I talk about that in the book, and Tony teaches it. It's pretty basic, but, you know, how, how you move your body, how you talk to yourself, and how what you focus on. And, and depending on the situation and on the plane that day, I couldn't get up and move around and jump up around. There was, I mean, there's no time for that. And, Canley, you can't start talking to yourself. So, you know, the, the, the way I managed my state during the entire situation was the power of focus. And I focused on the outcome and focused on the mission and focused on a bigger thing. And, and if you go see the movie Sully, and, and you'll see that, how that plays out with how Captain Sullenberger had to manage his state was through the power of focus. He, had, he couldn't move around. He, you know, he had internal dialogue, but he had to focus himself. So, you know, but state management is, I think, was the key to get us to the point where we had a chance to survive, not only from the cockpit, but everybody in the plane, because no one lost it on the plane, which is an amazing thing to understand. That you have 150 people in the back of the plane that's going down, and it's going down fast. You think people are going to be you know, chaotic, but they were managing their states in different ways. And I think it was one of the, one of the coolest things is one of the people who were actually saying the Lord's Prayer. So she was mm. vocally doing it, right, getting mm. it out. that she, she was connecting to her higher being, and that's how she got centered and managed her state. It was an amazing mm. thing to experience. And then you had a woman who tried to go back into the plane and get her luggage. She had another woman who had a baby, and she just was frozen in uh, not temperature, but frozen just in a state. And right. um, and then you asked her to throw you her baby. 
to yeah, kind of break her of that statement. Or the baby to break break her out of it, and she yeah. looked like look at me like I was crazy, right? Yeah. But what you know, I learned what I've learned, right, in working with teams and with Tony is when people get to that point point where you they, they just stifled, you got to do something just radical to break them out. And saying throw your baby is something pretty radical. Mm-hmm. And so fortunately for me, she just looked at me like I was an idiot. Mm-hmm. But the uh, lady on the lifeboat uh, was next to her from Knoxville. She heard me yell out, looked up, said, give me the baby. She gave her the baby, and all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden, I saw people walking down the wing, you know, because she was right in the middle. And I tell her, mm-hmm. no one was moving around her. So yeah. someone had to do something, and I just I just employed that one thing and went crazy for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the, the takeaways from the book I want to kind of dive into that kind of leaves the contents of the book and kind of goes into your personal journey and all of this. I'm sure, you know, once you got home, um, all of a sudden, uh, life was, um, rainbows and butterflies and, uh, you've never looked back on a bad day since, um, I'm being completely sarcastic here. Um, but you've had to implement, I'm sure some of this stuff yourself and you, you pull a passage, um, called, um, or excuse me, uh, from the Bible actually, as, as you kind of quoted in here where it says suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. In that moment, it's one thing to have hope when you land and you realize you're still alive. Like that adrenaline hit, the dopamine, whatever that is, you know, that's going to carry you out. Even if you're in shock, it's going to drive you out the door and get on that wing. Have there been times for you in your life since then where you've been in those moments where you had to embrace that reality? Oh, most definitely. It's, you know, like I tell folks, it's not all pixie dust and sunshine. I mean, it's uh, everybody goes through those those critical times in their life, whether it's a, a death in the family or something that happens. So, you know, I've always clung to hope where, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I, and I just listened to my mother, and like she told me, if you do the right thing, God will take care of you, and which God gives you hope, because the only certain thing really in the world is God. Everything else can change in a moment's notice, like we're, we're witnessing this week in Charlotte, where I live. It, we were a peaceful town, and all of a sudden, it's breaking loose. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, but I think you have to go through suffering to get to hope. And that's, mm-hmm. I tell people when I do my Red Cross events, is, you know, the Red Cross just doesn't show up, you know, with somebody who's happy. The Red Cross shows up when someone's suffering. You know, and, that, and that, so it all starts with with pain, and there's different levels, of course, of suffering from critical suffering to just maybe just a little pain of just being annoyed. Mm-hmm. But everybody's got that, so I, you know, I, I think everything hope really generates starts this generation from suffering, and if you can get through it, you just endure through it. You hope will come out, and all of a sudden you have another opportunity to to add value to somebody else's life. And do you speak that part of hope is really found in gratitude almost definitely that's where it's all grounded too and that's one of the things that's changed for me dramatically is i thought i had gratitude you know i i but you know what i was moving so fast and candidly i was in that achievement mindset we're making money making money i'm gonna do that this this and this but all of a sudden you step back after you do something like this and all of a sudden you like you have gratitude not only for just being alive but for the people around you and you know all the all the things that all of a sudden that uh, you've been given and opened up mm-hmm. to you that all of a sudden it's like, I have another chance to give. Let's make sure we do it the right, 
the right way now. And instead of always focusing on, on, on me and being significant, let's focus on contribution. Hmm. And so one of those contributions you just mentioned just a few moments ago is, is the Red Cross. Like you become quite an advocate and that's been part of your passion and, and your team really. Um, can you speak a little bit to what part they played and, and first responders? Well, I, I do. I speak passionately for the Red Cross. I had three Red Cross experiences throughout that day and that next day in about a 15-hour period. Um, but the most important, you know, they, they were there at the shore, which you see the movie. That was, was one of the great things that I was so happy about in seeing the movie is they actually used the real Red Cross people who helped us that day in the movie. Hmm. Um, but they were there at the shore. Someone in the middle of the night got me some clothes. Who, when I, didn't, I had no clothes. I had nothing but my watch. But the CEO of the Red Cross in Charlotte, her name was Pam Jeffers. I just wrote a blog about her today. Um, was there with my family, which was the most important thing that happened because she was taking care of my family while I was trying to get figure out stuff that was going on in my life. Mm -hmm. And so she asked me to uh, speak at her local event. Also, I did, and all of a sudden, very much, and all of a sudden, I started speaking around the country for the Red Cross. And to this day, I've spoken 139 times around the country and helped help raise $8.5 million because – it's about giving back because so, you know, somebody's suffering every moment of every day. Mm. And one of my goals out of this, this miracle on the Hudson is to take this miracle to every state. And one of the vehicles that I can use is the Red Cross because mm. they're in every state and pretty much every community. And I can, I hopefully can help them raise money and which takes this miracle, not, not in just New, Jer New Jersey, New York, but all across the country. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people that listen to this show are entrepreneurs, and you um, had been challenged to be an entrepreneur, and now all of a sudden you jumped out of um, corporate worlds and you became one. Um, can you maybe share, like, kind of how that's gone for you and, and what kind of maybe even limiting beliefs you've had to face in that trajectory? Well, that, you, I'll point the second point first because you're exactly right. I had a lot of limiting beliefs. You know, I knew that I could do it, but Canley, I had a wife who really loved life, health and life insurance and all the benefits that we were getting and, and the money that we were making and because we were living a good life. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying we're, we're not struggling, mm -hmm. but, you know, that, that jumping into a whole something new on your, when it's all on you and building yourself, you know, people question, are you this guy really crazy? Can you really do it? So I did, I did have limiting beliefs. I, I was giving a lot of, you know, um, excuses. But when I made that decision, how I made that decision was I, it was the fifth anniversary of the plane uh, crash, and CBS did a did a whole story on on me and my family. And they started in Charlotte, went to New York, and, and ended up in New Jersey. And in that end of that night, after it was shown on CBS, and I was doing some some media stuff in New York, I talked to my wife, and she said that, that my company said that they call you today. I said no. I said they call you. She goes no. She goes maybe. Maybe it is time for you to do what you need to do. Hmm. And all of a sudden, 48 hours later, I, was, I gave my notice and I was gone. But I still had struggles because I, you know, one thing I was, I was confident and had faith in, I was really good at because I was a sales guy. Yeah. I could drive revenue. The problem was I didn't know anything about the back end stuff, all the things you got to do to manage a, a business. So the first year was a learning experience for me. That mm -hmm. uh, you know we were ha we were having having revenue, but can we collections, accounts receivable, paying people, all the things administration you got to do, mm -hmm. I didn't have a clue. Mm -hmm. So it took me a couple of years. So I did have some setbacks. Yeah. It wasn't pixie dust and sunshine like like we talked about a moment ago. But I think it's I, that's one of the reasons I talk about persistence in the book because the only way you can, I my belief is the only way you can fail is if you give up. Mm -hmm. and that's and that's uh, the entrepreneurs that 
give it a shot, but then you know, always have that out. Because yeah. Tony always told me. In fact, one of the last things Tony told me when we were in Chicago together, when we, I, we, uh, he told me, go, go do this. I'm going to find another security. He forced me to do that because he said, I'm going to find somebody else. Hmm. He said, burn the bridge. He said, do not burn the boats, burn the bridge. Do not have an out because you'll hmm. always go out. And so I did. Hmm. I, I didn't literally burn it because I still have good relationships with that, my old company. But, yeah. you know, I, I'm not going back. Yeah. And that's, that's what entrepreneur, I think, that's, that's the difference between just an entrepreneur and entrepreneurship where, you know, you got that mindset of, you know what, I'm in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I can be an entrepreneur, but if entrepreneurship, I'm in, I'm in this thing and I'm not going back. Yeah. I got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So, it's awesome. Um, I want to um, give you one more chance to, like, just share your heart as we bring it in for a landing. Okay. Um, you've never heard that before. Um, you have some some tidbits in the back of the book about some leadership, and you talk about kind of your ritual. Um, some of that's listening right here. Um, up in your business is all about getting up in that psychological and emotional element that is necessary for success. What would you say to the person that's listening right now um, in light of where you're at, where you're going, how you got here? Because that's some supernatural serendipity in and of itself. What would you tell somebody about their journey? Well, what I, what I would recommend, because it happened to me, but it didn't happen to me during this part of the journey. It happened to me probably 29, 30 plus years ago is I found that mentor, that person who took interest in me, who had, who I could use their 50 or 60 years of experience and compress their experience down to days of me to be able to use it. And I would say, and I recommend the, the youth right now when I talk to youth, find that person. There's so many people out here who would love to give you time and help you get to that place, but no one ever asked them. Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately for me, I had someone who did that to me, and, but I was still in the corporate world at that point. I was still in the, working in restaurants at that point. But he was giving me the life lessons I needed. So when I made that move, you know, I could do it. So I would say, well, you know, if, if you're ready to take that jump, before you take the jump, find somebody who's done it, model what they've done, do what they say to, to do, and, and just do that. And, and if you do, success leaves clues. And that's, you know, I modeled Tony. I modeled a couple different people. And I had, yes, I had access to calling people. But you know what? I had to make a lot of phone calls to get to that point. Mm. But now, you know, I know that if I have a problem, like the accounts, I'll go back to the accounts payable problem that I had, receivable problem, I mean, I had. You know, I had a problem. I didn't know how to do it. Mm. I knew a couple people who had the same problem. I called them up, and they gave me some strategies on how to do it, and it's not a problem anymore. Mm -hmm. So I would say find those mentors and be very resourceful. Do not be afraid to ask. Mm. You know, and that's where a lot of people are afraid. I have no problem. I could. I would go up to anybody. I'll go up to the mayor of Charlotte. I'll go up to the governor of North Carolina. It does. Mm-hmm. If, I, if they can help me, help somebody else. We're well, asking that question. So don't be afraid to ask. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that. You know, there's something that um, you shared in here. It's not your quote. You shared somebody else's quote. This is Jim Rohn, and he's one of my favorites. And this is what you what he said. He said, "Don't wish it was easier. Wish you were better." Don't wish for less problems, wish for more skills. Don't wish for less challenge, wish for more wisdom. Yep. I, one of the things I love about Jim Rohn, and I never had the opportunity to meet him. I, I listened to him, and I saw him on stage once. Yeah, but one of the things he always, I heard him say and over and over is, you know, it's, you want a bigger problem. You know, people don't want problems. Well, problems are going to be there whether you like it or not. 
So what you want to do is raise your, you know, raise the level of problem you have from a small problem to a big problem because it makes you grow. And I think that was one of the biggest things I've always remembered from Jim Rohn. And, you know, and, and it helped me build my skill sets out so I had to handle a problem, you know, that I was never forced to handle before. Mm. And, and, you know, from having to, you know, help bury my mother. I never had to bury anybody in my life. It was a skill set that I did not have. But I mm. learned very quickly how to handle things like that. So now... I can handle it. It's a bigger problem to have. So Tony always said the same thing. He said, you want big problems. You don't want to deal with the small stuff. Give big problems because they'll make you grow, make you expand. And he learned that from Jim Rohn, and I heard it from Jim Rohn. So I think it's uh, one of the greatest lessons I ever had. Hmm. Well, Dave, uh, really excited to see the movie. Such a privilege to have a chat with you. If people want to get a hold of you, how can they do that? Well, thank you, Angus. This is a great conversation because you, you took me places I haven't been able to go for a long time. If uh, someone wants to contact me, the best way is to go to my website at DaveSandersonSpeaks.com. Leave me a message because now I interact with everybody. I have no filters whatsoever, so if you do that, you get straight to me. But, uh, you know, Facebook, of Dave Sanderson Speaks, and that's where I sort of leave my big picture things where I'm going to be and some things are going on. And, and Twitter, of course, is my sort of my – it's called it's Dave Sanderson, too. I just leave my quips. But lately, I've been doing a lot with LinkedIn because it allows me to talk about the business lessons from that day and expand on those to, to an audience that, uh, who, who can appreciate, you know, looking at, at business situations and problems in a different way. So, you know, LinkedIn is mom under David Sanderson. I'd be honored if anybody would, uh, when they're listening, just go ahead and like me and reach out to me because I love to talk to people because my calendar's out. If I'm coming to a city near you, please ping me and say, I'd love to hear you speak. I'll put you on my guest list and uh, we'll meet that way. That's fantastic. Well, I look forward to doing that in Nashville here coming up real soon. Yep. Dave. I look forward to it. Yeah, it'll be a good time. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an honor. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much to Dave for his time today. Um, I hope you got some inspiration from his words and his story. Um, You know, one of the things that we talked about in the interview was that quote about Jim Rohn, about, you know, the challenges that we face and that instead we should wish that we were better or wish that we had more skills or wish for wisdom. Man, I I really embrace that right now um, in light of doing a new startup business and trying to move forward in my own life and make better decisions. Man, I really want to be better and I want to have better skills and even myself you know, even though I help people like you and help others, I myself always have to rest on other people as well, asking for help and and leaning on other people sometimes when uh, I need to. And I want to encourage you today that you too understand that moments do matter, that if you're feeling down or if you're feeling challenged, that's an opportunity for you to look at that mom that moment and become extremely focused on what you need to do in that moment. And if you don't know what to do, don't be afraid to ask. Ask someone for help. Ask someone for guidance. Ask someone for a listening ear. And that's my encouragement for you today. So thanks so much for joining me today. If you have questions or thoughts about today's show, maybe you want to ask me some questions, please feel free to reach out. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Angus Nelson. You can come find me on my website at AngusNelson.com. If you're looking for any of these links and show notes for the episode, or if you want to get into our private Facebook group that I just uh, 
um, that we've been doing for all of this time, feel free. You can find all those links at angusnelson.com forward slash zero six zero for all of that information. Uh, I am your host, Angus Nelson. Go ahead and tell your friends about our show because the greatest compliment you can give is a referral to someone else, either by telling them in person or sharing it on the web. Keep taking your business up by getting up in your business. Live intentionally, love extravagantly, and lead with self-awareness. Be amazing. Thanks for listening to the Up In Your Business podcast with Angus Nelson. Find more at upinyourbusiness.co. Remember, that's .co, not com. <laughs>